From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that really matters. Earlier in 2020, Bernie Sanders made headlines when, in a 60 Minutes interview, he seemed to defend some aspects of the Fidel Castro regime in Cuba. Specifically, he said that Fidel Castro had a, quote, massive literacy program, unquote. These remarks and the backlash that followed them may have been a surprise to some younger voters, but anyone who has followed U.S.-Cuba relations for any length of time knows that the Castro regime did indeed have robust public education and health care programs. They also know that Fidel Castro was an authoritarian dictator with no tolerance for dissenting views and little regard for human rights. In short, it's complicated. So today we're talking about what Cuba got right. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Philip Brenner. Phil is a professor in the School of International Service and an expert in U.S.-Cuba relations, Latin America, and the Cuban Missile Crisis. His most recent books are Cuba Libre, A 500-Year Quest for Independence, co-authored with Peter Eisner, and Cuba at the Crossroads, co-authored with William Leogrand and John Kirk, which came out just two weeks ago. Phil, thanks for joining Big World. My pleasure. Thank you, Kay. And I should add that we're not in our usual studio inside the school today. As we record this, everyone is advised to stay home and practice social distancing because of the risks of transmitting the novel coronavirus. So we're recording this from our respective homes. And Phil, I want to thank you for agreeing to be our guest guinea pig for virtual recording. It's a pleasure. (laughs) I wish the same for everyone to stay healthy. Exactly. All right, so let's get into it. Phil, it was a little surprising to me when headlines about the current Democratic nominating contest suddenly became all about Fidel Castro. It's hard to remember, but a few months ago, this was big news. It was all we were hearing about. It was a reminder of what a long shadow he casts. It's almost impossible for Americans to discuss Cuba without talking about Castro, even though he died four years ago. First of all, were you surprised at the remarks made by Senator Sanders or by the reaction to them? I wasn't surprised by Senator Sanders' uh, remarks because they were accurate. Mm -hmm. As you said in your introduction, Cuba had a model literacy program uh, starting in 1960. Uh, UNESCO, the United Nations Organization, highlighted it as a model for what other countries could do. Uh, What happened in 1960? and ended in 1961, was Cuba went from 65% literacy to 98% literacy. Uh, And it took high school students and college students all over the country. They closed the schools, actually, and those students went out to teach other people how to read. Uh, They were called brigadistas. And I, I can tell you there's a museum of the literacy campaign, as it was called, And the most graphic image for me is a a note that was written by a 90-year-old woman. She wrote a a note that said, when I was 60, I was told I was too old to learn how to read. And here I am writing this letter to you. They were wrong. Tears came to my eyes. Uh, And this was true all across the country, that uh, people learned how to read. And Cuba became a country with a very highly educated population. Uh, So I wasn't surprised by Senator Sanders' remark because it was quite accurate. What was surprising is how visceral the reactions were still antagonistic to Cuba because, after all, President Obama opened diplomatic relations with Cuba in uh, 2015. He visited Cuba. We 
under the Obama administration, Cuba and the United States signed 23 memoranda of understanding uh, agreements to share technology, to open up uh, regularly scheduled airline travel, so on. Um, and so there was a moment of detente, if you will. Uh, it could be that the reaction was partly fueled by uh, President Trump's policy of antagonism towards Cuba. Right. And as you mentioned, when we talk about present day Cuba, we talk about a nation that is led by someone else entirely, by President Miguel Diaz-Canal, with Fidel's brother, Raul Castro, currently serving as first secretary of the Communist Party of Cuba. When our assessments in the U.S. of present day Cuba are colored by attitudes toward Fidel Castro, what are we missing about Cuba today? Well, in part, it's not totally inaccurate. I mean, after all, Miguel Diaz-Canal was anointed by Raul Castro. Raul Castro became president in 2006 when Fidel Castro uh, took ill. Um, And then he remained president for 10 years. Um, And Miguel um, Diaz-Canal was the vice president, named to be the president. Essentially, he was elected but nonetheless, it wasn't much of an election. Uh, and so there is that sense that there is still no democracy. And Raul Castro, as you note, is the head of the Communist Party uh, and will continue in that role until 2021. On the other hand, Cuba is a much different society than it was in the 1960s. Uh, there's a vibrant private sector in Cuba, uh, although that's been diminished by the efforts by the United States to Uh, stop any uh, travel from U.S. citizens and to discourage foreign investment in Cuba by uh, other countries. Um, Still, there is a thriving private sector in Cuba. There is much more openness. They have internet access that they uh, never had before, and so they get information from all over the world. In fact, they were getting that kind of information before the internet opened up uh, in 2014. Uh, They have a weekly paqueta, it's called. Uh, you can take a thumb drive, go to a neighborhood source and download any TV shows that you want that are shown anywhere in the world. So, uh, and there's a weekly listing. There are all the shows that anyone who watch in the United States are available to people in Cuba. So they had lots of access to information. It was no longer a closed society. Uh, people felt free to actually openly criticized. There are magazines published online because paper is very expensive, uh, but people have ready access through cell phones uh, and uh, through texting. And uh, so it's a very, the, the vibe in Cuba is a very different one than it was 20, even 30 years ago. We talked about the literacy program a little bit. One of the other positive developments in Cuba after the revolution ended in 1959 was the country's investment in public health, which is certainly on everyone's mind right now. So what can you tell us about that investment in public health in Cuba after the revolution and and kind of what resulted from that? Uh, Shortly after the revolution, um, a large number, two thirds of the doctors in Cuba left Cuba. They were attracted to come to the United States with generous authors. um, And uh, they felt that they were not going to be able to earn the kinds of money they were earning before. Uh, And so Cuba had to rebuild from the ground up. By 
the early 1970s, it had done so. Uh, Cuba ultimately had the largest per capita doctor population in the world. And there was a great emphasis on preventive healthcare as well as curative uh, healthcare. And so uh, Cuba began to have a profile, a health profile that was the same as an advanced industrial country. Their uh, infant mortality rate today is actually lower than uh, in the United States, far lower than most third world countries at about 4.6 deaths per thousand live births. The United States is a little over five. And the they have a system of family doctors where uh, doctors make regular house calls in neighborhoods. Of course, medicine is free. Uh, healthcare is free. All kinds of operations are free. They made an enormous investment, so much so that they had more doctors than they needed. And so they started actually uh, sending doctors abroad first in a free capacity so that they were essentially providing aid to poor countries that needed doctors. And then when they began to need hard currency, uh, currency that you can use in international transactions, uh, they started charging. Uh, so uh, in Latin America, uh, they when there were richer countries, uh, the doctors, Cuba received uh, money for the uh, doctors going there. Now, there were charges that this was human trafficking because the doctors didn't receive actually all the money that the countries paid, but the doctors did receive a quarter. And in uh, Cuban terms, that was a lot of money for a doctor. There were over 40,000 doctors uh, in Latin America from Cuba. There was one program uh, called uh, Operacion Milagro, Miracle Operation that restored eyesight to more than 1 million people. Sometimes it was a simple operation that people needed who had never seen a doctor in order to get their eyesight back. Uh, more than a million people in Latin America re got their eyesight restored by uh, this Cuban program. That's actually begun to change uh, because the uh, conservative governments in Latin America have kicked the Cuban doctors out. It's really quite inexplicable that someone like Bolsonaro, the leader of Brazil, has uh, kicked the Cuban doctors out, denying his own people uh, health care. This has cost Cuba a lot of money, uh, obviously, and they've now taken this surplus of doctors, and uh, it's what ena has enabled them to help countries in Europe, like Italy, with the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, so they're now sending doctors to countries in Europe uh, and Africa uh, to help with COVID-19. Interesting. Another, let me say another aspect of this. They've also invested an extraordinary amount in uh, capacity to create new advanced drugs. So Cuba has a, what they think is an effective lung cancer vaccine. Um, and uh, this is now actually being tested in Roswell Park, New York, under FDA auspices. Uh, this was one of the agreements with uh that came out of the Obama administration. Uh, another drug that Cuba has that should be tested in the United States is a drug for people with diabetes. 60,000 Americans every year have one or more limbs amputated because of diabetes. And they, Cuba has developed a drug that prevents the necessity for amputations. So there are things that we could 
get from Cuba that the current policy prevents us from getting. As we move toward what Cuba is like today, you did mention that openness um, that exists that didn't previously. And there's been an emergence of entrepreneurship, uh, particularly in the, the tourism sector. Did any Cuban policies implemented after the rule of Fidel Castro lead to this development of, of entrepreneurship? It's a very good question, Kay. Uh, after Fidel Castro uh, stepped down, uh, his brother, Raul Castro, who had always been more pragmatic, uh, saw the necessity to have a mixed economy. Um, and in 2010, uh, he proposed that there be a new set of guidelines uh, for creating private enterprise. Those guidelines were discussed uh, by the whole country. There were a large number of meetings where people discussed the proposed guidelines. Uh, and in fact, there were a large number of changes. When the guidelines came out in 2011, um, it allowed some 200 different kinds of entrepreneurial activities, everything from being a barber, hairstylist, uh, to repairing cars. Um, and uh, so it was meant to stimulate small business. Uh, one study uh, find, found that, in fact, there was about 20% of the working population by 2014 doing this kind of work uh, with an expectation that it could be as much as 50% ultimately doing work for private companies. Uh, they, in addition, they changed rules about restaurants. So originally, uh, the Cubans were very inventive and started selling food out of their private homes. Uh, people would come and carry out. And then people started having a few seats on their patio that someone could come and eat. Uh, these were known as paladars, private restaurants. Um, and then more and more grew. The government allowed an increased number uh, of people to be seated. You could start hiring private employees before you could only have members of your family uh, work in these restaurants. And so today there are large numbers of very fine restaurants that are privately owned and run. Um, although they're hurting because of the diminished number of tourists that are going to Cuba. Phil Brenner, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guests, get to daydream out loud and reorder the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. Specifically, which five practices would you change to improve the U.S.'s policies toward Latin America? The first thing I would do is end the Monroe Doctrine. Secretary of State John Kerry announced in 2013 that the era of the Monroe Doctrine was over. But he said it only once, and it was never said again. And then President Trump has announced that the era of the Monroe Doctrine continues. The Monroe Doctrine is hated in Latin America because it is uh, a policy of rooted racism, parochialism, and uh, domination. And so Latin Americans think that this is an unacceptable way to have a relationship. It is not a relationship of partners, it's a relationship of domination. The second, we should end the drug war in Latin America. The drug war has not been successful. It has not reduced the flow of drugs to the United States. Uh, we need to take a new approach that doesn't displace 
uh, large numbers of people, that doesn't lead to the deaths of large numbers of people, and doesn't lead to instability in Latin America. And we, there are many ways we can do this. We could increase, for example, the facilities for people in the United States so there's treatment and less demand. Uh, we can work with those countries on developing alternatives to growing uh, things like coca uh, in, so that people can have, make a living on something other than drugs. The third thing I would do is end the war on Cuba. Cuba has symbolic purposes for the rest of Latin America and we gain nothing from having a, an effort to try to overthrow that government uh, that's been a failed policy for 60 years uh, and uh, there's no reason to continue a failed policy like this. That's exactly what President Obama tried to do and President Trump has reversed that. The fourth thing I would do is uh, aim for a negotiated settlement in Venezuela. Venezuela is a country that has now produced more than a million refugees, many flooding into Colombia, which has helped to destabilize Colombia. The, the conflict in Venezuela needs to end. And the only way to do that is if the United States can help act as a, a honest broker rather than taking one side, which it has done in this, uh, and prevented actually negotiations that the Europeans wanted to lead. And so the way out of the Venezuela uh, morass is to promote negotiated solution to this. And the final thing I would do is I would uh, stand at the Mexican border and tear down this wall, Mr. Trump, uh, the same way that President Reagan stood at the Brandenburg Gate and said, tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Uh, they, uh, the wall serves as a symbol of our uh, unwillingness to be open to Latin America. It doesn't stop the flow of immigrants, in, illegal immigrants into the United States, um, and it is very costly. And so the best thing we can do is tear down this wall. Thank you, that was great. Thank you, Kay. If we think about Cuba today and an average citizen, or maybe even an, an average school child, someone who's who doesn't have as much of a history there, how different is life in Cuba today for that average school kid than it was under Fidel Castro? For the average school kid in Cuba today, let's say a high school student, uh, there are both pluses and minuses. On the plus side, uh, there is still the availability of going to university for free, uh, becoming a professional, uh, studying and uh, doing meaningful work of that sort without any cost. Um, and you, you have those opportunities. Moreover, you can now travel in ways that you couldn't before. So uh, students are able to get scholarships to go abroad. We had, for example, uh, the first full-time Cuban in our graduate program two years ago, who turned out to be the number one student in SIS uh, academically. Um, and uh, she was able to come here because SIS, the School of International Service, gave her a full scholarship. Uh, Cubans obviously have difficulty affording to uh, pay for higher education in the United States, but when they get scholarships, they're now able to accept them and to come to the United States and or other countries. And so that's those are new opportunities for a high school student. On the downside, 
young people have very little hope about the future because the economy is suffering so much. So that even if you have a good education, there aren't sufficient number of jobs in which you could use that education. A person who drives a taxi makes more money than a person who is a doctor. And so if you're graduating from high school, your decision, your choice is, do I drive a taxi and make a living or do I spend the next eight years learning how to become a doctor and earn a living that's less than a taxi driver? And so uh, there is very, there's a sense of low morale on the part of young people. Uh, and young people have been leaving the country uh, in greater numbers because of the lack of opportunity inside the country. So we talked about earlier, uh, you mentioned the Cuban thaw that happened under President Obama in 2015. And under our current administration, as you said, some of this thaw has started to freeze back up or has been frozen. Can you give us a breakdown of what the U.S.'s bilateral relationship with Cuba is currently like? The U.S. relationship with Cuba right now is at one of its worst points, although we still have diplomatic relations that were established by uh, President Obama with uh, Cuba, and President Trump has not changed that. In fact, in his first year, he changed very little. Uh, he made it slightly more difficult for Americans to travel there. They had to go with a official tourist agency um, or a licensed group like the Smithsonian Institution or American University. And that uh, made it a little more difficult for the ordinary American to travel. There had been more than a million Americans who had gone to Cuba uh, before that. Uh, but he didn't do much else except then in the fall of 2017, uh, there were some U.S. diplomats who were uh, had come down with some illnesses that the president then claimed were caused by attacks by the Cuban government. Um, and as a result, he closed down essentially the consular section of the U.S. embassy in Havana. Uh, it, there were only now 10 U.S. foreign service officers in the embassy, and he demanded that Cuba reduced the size of its embassy in Washington at the same time uh, in retaliation for the alleged attacks. Those, those attacks uh, are a different story. There's no evidence that Cuba was involved in any of this. Uh, it, the problems may be as simple as a fumigation that was used on the lawns outside the uh, people's homes uh, that contains a chemical that causes the kinds of symptoms that these people suffered, uh, but there's still no clear evidence as to what the cause of these illnesses were. And yet this has been used to close down essentially the operations of both embassies, which has made it more difficult for people to travel to Cuba and especially Cubans to leave Cuba. On top of that, the president then began to uh, reduce the availability of flights to Cuba. So uh, now the only flights that can go to Cuba, apart from the coronavirus, because there's essentially no travel now to Cuba because of the coronavirus, but until February, uh, he had canceled flights outside of Havana. The people who would use those flights are Cuban Americans traveling 
to see their families in the interior of the country, on the far end of the country. Uh, and so he's made it more difficult for Cuban Americans to visit their families in Cuba. And then finally, what he did is he no longer waived the provision of the 1996 Helms-Burton Law. The Helms-Burton Law was intended to create great hardship uh, for Cuba by discouraging foreign investors from putting money into Cuba. It, the law allowed uh, that a U.S. citizen could sue a foreign government or foreign entity that was uh, using property that had been confiscated from that U.S. citizen. Uh, now, that provision of the law uh, was waived by every president, starting with President Clinton and including President Trump until last year. Last year, he refused to waive that. And that has now created a new burden for foreign entities that might want to invest in Cuba. It's reduced the amount of foreign investment in Cuba. And so relations are really very quite, quite tense. And that brings me to my last question. Phil, as you pull way back and knowing all you know about the country and the U.S. and where the governments are now, what do you think the U.S.'s relationship with Cuba should be like going forward, perhaps post-election 2020, and why? Cuba is a neighbor, and we have relations that go back a long time. There are a large number of Cuban Americans uh, in the United States who would like to have better relations with their family um, and to send money that the president has uh, restricted. Uh, and there are Cubans who want to do things in the United States. We have things to gain from Cuba. Cuba is the number one uh, ally we have in fighting drugs, according to the Drug Enforcement Agency. Um, and so we're essentially harming ourselves by not having a better relationship with Cuba. Uh, Cuba has medicines that can help Americans. Uh, and opening up Cuba to uh, Americans is likely to bring more openness for Cuba. Although I don't think that's such an important uh, aspect of the policy. Uh, we have relations with all kinds of countries that have uh, much greater restrictions on their people. Uh, journalists, for example, are not killed in Cuba, but they killed, uh, there are a large number of journalists killed in Mexico and Colombia. Uh, uh, so their level of freedom in Cuba is less than we would like, but uh, certainly it's no worse than in a lot of countries where we have good relations. Uh, and we stand to benefit from having peaceful relations with a neighbor rather than antagonistic relations. Finally, uh, Cuba in Latin, in Latin America, not so much the governments, but the people in Latin America, have looked to Cuba as a country that has stood up for itself against uh, United States that's often seen as a colossus trying to impose itself on Latin America. And so there's still enormous amount of respect in Latin America, among the people of Latin America, uh, for what Cuba has achieved. And in this regard, the uh, a better relationship with Cuba removes that aura of United States imperialism that Latin Americans associate with the United States. And I've, I've definitely heard it said before that it's interesting that we have such a hard line with Cuba on different issues when we don't take a similarly hard line with, say, Saudi Arabia. Exactly. 
Phil Brenner, thank you for joining Big World to discuss Cuba. It's been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you very much, Kay. Stay safe. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you leave us a good rating or review, it'll be like finding a surprise bag of M&Ms on your desk. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time.